There's no music if you have no body to play it with, so take care of your body first. You getting into the gym and you lifting weights and working on muscles, is it's physical therapy for the benefit of your playing. The truth is nothing works like just taking care of the simple stuff. Diet, exercise and sleep. Take care of that and you'll be fine. Join us as two musicians and fitness coaches discuss strength, wellness and fitness in relation to musicians, artists and performance. Hey there, welcome back to the Tuned and Strong podcast. This is Angela McHouston of Music Strong. And this is Dr. Jen Cabasmay of Tuned and Toned Performance. And today we're joined by a special guest, Dr. Jackie Dove. Jackie, how are you doing today? I'm good, thank you for having me. Absolutely. So to those of you who are not familiar in our audience with who you are, could you please just tell us a little about yourself, who you are, et cetera? Yeah, so um, yeah, so Jackie Dove, and I'm a professor of anatomy physiology at McLennan Community College, and I'm an adjunct professor at Baylor, so I teach over there too. Um, I've been teaching since 2002, like some form of physiology. Um, so my educational background, I have a BA in psychology, and I minor in um, well anthropology. So I kind of have like an evolutionary foundation in how I approach things. And then um, I have my master's is in ex-phys, and I did my clinical work in inpatient cardiopulmonary. And after that, I went on to get my PhD at Baylor in exercise nutrition preventive health. And then I did my postdoc in psychology and neuroscience at the mind-body medicine research lab at Baylor, where I delivered a hypnosis intervention for hot flashes in postmenopausal females. Um, also, I've been to India. I went to school there too um, and trained in um, teaching Hatha yoga. Um, so, so I trained there. I started meditating about 20 years ago. So I, I've always been really, really interested in like this intersection of um, like psychology and the mind and then, you know, exercise and nutrition. I feel like it's just, you know, how we kind of stay sustained. Um, I started playing music um, whenever I was in sixth grade and I just kind of thought, oh, I'll, you know, I'll go on to college and, and play, um, but my band director left and so I wasn't able to pursue that. And um, so I, I stopped, I tried to be a music minor for like a year and my anxiety couldn't handle it. And I think that that's kind of coming into our topic today of um, my interest in the, in the area has just really been based on my, a lot of my experiences. Most of my education was kind of to, so I could understand myself better and then just me being a nerd about things and having this hyper focus and wanting to talk about my special interest. It's just a nice side effect where I get to talk about A&P, but I really started with me trying to figure out what is going on with me. And um, I had to walk away from music um, because it was just, it was, too hard and I didn't understand what was happening and then after I go on this big journey you know I ended up getting a, uh, a full-time job where there's a community band and it's like a Friday fun band we kind of talk about it's like a, a community concert band here on campus and I was able to get back into playing music because I know how important playing music is for our brain and our cognitive reserve and um I just needed to be in a safe, secure place where I could start playing again. And um, now I play in the Waco Community Band, and I was fortunate to get to play in our um, Clinton Community Orchestra for a little bit. 
And um, so all of this has come together for me, like with protecting musicians, um, you know, like what you're doing, like physically is so important. But then also the cognitive part um, and understanding that we have a lot of neurodiversity in musicians and sometimes some of the communication differences, you know, we intersect with our teachers and students. And, and when you are diverse and kind of throw some terminology there, it started out in the, um, in the 1990s, um, Judy Singer, she's Australian, she came up with that term and it was really um, more with the autism community but it's expanded and you know we can look at other neurodevelopmental differences and sometimes it's hard to communicate with someone who's neurotypical when you are neurodiverse and those things can get in the way um with music instruction as a student between teachers and and so i think that for me i just want to figure out what can we do to just make it to where we just can continue playing and and recognizing you know that there may need to be some accommodations you know that that need that can support that student so when you say uh, neurotypical and neurodivergent what what does mm -hmm. that what the, what does that terminology mean i think that when she first brought it up it was really more of like a social movement mm -hmm. um where we have like advocacy and inclusion and recognizing that some like neurological patterns, right? The way we think about things, at least neurodiversity is everybody. Everyone's different, you know, in how we process information, but there's some processing that may be outside of like our norm, you know, and when it's outside of that norm, um, then those differences um, can be, can, you know, can make it where you're not able to communicate together. And so that inclusion is kind of lost. Mm. Um, and so in the autism community, it, you know, that had, had been recognized earlier, you know, and so now I think the focus is more on looking at the physiology behind that too, and then recognizing and there's other conditions where that, that affects a person. Is that clear? Okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, kind of. <laughs> I'm inferring what you mean, but I'm not convinced that I really understand. Okay, so um, Harvard, <laughs> Harvard, <laughs> so in Harvard's uh, website, you know, they kind of defined it as that is a differences in neurological and developmental conditions. So I'll give you an example. So, so for me, there's, there are things that someone who's neurotypical, you probably, you just do because it's like the norm, like in communication. Okay, but someone who's neurodivergent, because we may not communicate the same. Okay, we miss some of those cues. Mm -hmm. And so for for example, like, um, I think one of the first times I kind of realized, wait, I'm not like hearing things the same as other people. Like we're, we're driving in the mountains and there's like this sign that's like, it's a B alert, you know, with a B-E, -E, so like a, like the, you know, like a B. <laughs> And, you know, that's cute. And it's a cute way to communicate to people. Oh, be careful and stuff. But like my first impulse was like, I, I was jarred. And I was like, oh my God, I'm like looking for bees. <laughs> you know, and I'm just like, so there's this, this tendency to like take things real literal, mm -hmm. <laughs> very literal. And then it takes a little bit of more time to be like, oh, wait, 
um, that's not what that means. You know, we're not in danger. So, so there's like, you know, this, this tendency to just be very literal and need, and also to need things said, um, in like a stepwise clear communication pattern, maybe more so than someone who's neurotypical. It takes a little extra work. Um, and instruction where I realized it hit me. I was at, I was in Colorado at ski school. And I'm so excited, you know, we got to go to ski school. And the white, the instruction was like, okay, hey, take your feet and do them like this and take your feet and do them like this, you know. And after we go through this hour or whatever, I realized like everybody got to go get on the, the ski lift except for me. And I was sitting there, I was like, oh. and they were going to the bunny slope and I didn't get to go. And this is like, you know, a few years ago. <laughs> and I was like, what? you know, what's going on? And I was like, and he's like, we're going to work a little more, you know? <laughs> and then I like, all of a sudden I'm like going down this hill and I'm about to like slam into him. So I made myself crash because I didn't know how to stop. And so later on, I'm talking to one of my friends and he's like, well, he didn't tell you how to stop. I was like, no, it's like the only thing he did. He's like, do your feet like this, do your feet like this, do your feet like this. And he was like, oh, well, that's how you stop. I was like, oh, he never said the words. This is how you stop. That's, that's kind of interesting. That's what I mean by neurodiversity. See, like everybody, everyone else in that group could do it. But I didn't know what he was talking about because he never said the words. This is how you stop. This is how you turn. Mm -hmm. You know, I need things over explained, perhaps. Does that help? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm less nervous now. <laughs> that makes a whole lot of sense. Yeah. So like in music, it gets in the way sometimes because I don't, I need extra attention on this is why we do things, not, hey, do this. And then being a scientist makes it worse. <laughs> because, I think it would make it better. It's extra like cut and dry, but no. No, because I feel like uh, my band director told me the other day, he's like, I was asking about the hertz and what do we mean by overtones and what is exactly happening with the, with the, the air angles. And it's like, you're overthinking. I was like, scientists as musicians. I mean, this is hard. So it's like, I'll, I'll get to a point and it's like, well, you can't just tell me, Oh, do this. And we're, we're going to, you know, then this is going to help you with this. It's like, well, no, I need to know why, what do you mean? But there's different scales. And next thing you know, I'm having to go in and I'm going to have to research all the different scales and all the flutes. And why would I have different variations in tones? And why would I have to like, you know, tune up, you know, lower the pitch on this note and, and raise it on another one versus, I mean, I have to know everything. It is not enough to tell me, Oh, you know, the airstream needs to come up warm. And I'm like, well, well, of course the air is going to be warmer when it comes from the deeper parts of your respiratory system. It's just like, um, it's like, I need, I think that there's maybe some, for some of us, there's, there's the inability to, to put the picture together. So I need as much data as possible. Whereas when I'm working, you know, in my professional musician friends, I'm like, it's so intuitive to you. You don't have to know all the things. But for me, I'm like, I need to know all the things. <sighs> I don't think you're alone though. No, actually, I have a student. I have a student who's not that bad, by the way. But we we definitely had to like, okay, I'm going to give you this much and tell you why. But if I don't say why, oh, there's an issue. Yeah. Well, then I'm not going to do that because why would I do? 
oh, you need me to tell you. Okay, I can do that. Mm-hmm. I need to know that I need to. <laughs> <Huh>. <laughs> you know? But a lot of students don't care. Oh, okay, do that. Okay, it's it's efficiency. But there are definitely students I've run into. I'm like, okay, I need to explain to you what we're doing, why we're doing it, why it works that way, and, and whether think- or not I'm being literal. <laughs> And some of the symptoms, you know, with people who are a little more neurodiverse, you know, might be increased anxiety and increased depression and some of these other things. And one of the issues with anxiety is anxiety is increased when you can't predict an outcome. Mm. And so if you have more data, it gives more empowerment to predict. And I, and I think that's where, for me, like the needs come in, but it also gets in the way um, because um, one of the things for me, like pattern recognition and needing everything to be very <laughs> predictable. And that's why I'm the one that's like, when in doubt, play scales. I could just play scales all day long and just, you know, I just love it because you could just, you can just predict. Um, so for me, I, you know, if I would miss a note, for example, it was just freaking the end of the world. And, you know, Galloway had a quote. It's like, oh, you missed a note. How interesting. You know, the recovery is so, is harder because mm-hmm. it's not just that I missed a note. The pattern screwed up. And that, oh, that's like, so it's, it's very destabilizing. Mm-hmm. So it's because the patterns and being able to predict becomes like a comfort zone almost like a weighted blanket you know for me so it's like there's so much more involved um than just oh missing a note musicality is messed up and you know I can't just recover and keep going which is what you need to do just get over it you know um but that takes more work maybe that is so incredibly helpful because I'm thinking about all these students that I have taught over the years but I would just get frustrated I'm like just it's a wrong note. It doesn't matter. In fact, that's a good thing because now we can find out blah, 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 blah. And they were just hyper fixated on the no. And I, can't, I haven't thought of it the way that you just said it. The fact that the pattern, it destabilized everything because you're more of a big picture and a pattern than I'm just like, oh, it's a wrong note. It's the, in the scheme of things, big deal. But that makes so much more sense. And I think that any teachers that are listening, that that can be extra helpful in understanding, like if you have students like this, understanding that suddenly things feel like you're walking on marbles and there's all of this out here. It's not exactly the same as it was. And now we have a lot more work to do. It's not just a wrong note. That's fascinating. Yeah. And then even like, it helps me to know what's important to my teacher. So for example, I'm doing an A2 and I told her this past week, I'm like, oh, it helps me if I know what the purpose and the goal of the A2 is what are we working on here? Because I was taking a lesson and I messed up my articulations and, and I was, you know, and I'm get, feeling myself getting destabilized. So I'm having to work with, oh, just relax. But then I was even like sweating by the end of it, which I obviously did not do a good job relaxing on. And she, you know, and I was like, oh, I'm sorry, I missed articulations, you know, and she's like, oh, I don't worry. I'm not worried about that. And I was like, oh, well, like, if I know that, that helps me not freak out. When I miss that, what is important to you as the teacher? So, again, that kind of comes into the clear communication. Um, maybe more so than another student, you know, to, mm-hmm. to let us clearly know, okay, I want to hear evenness. I want to hear a full sound. You know, if you miss a note, I'm not listening for that. That helps me. 
Yeah, and this this actually kind of ties into uh, what we were talking about with uh, Lee Lee Pearson a few episodes ago. Um, you know, <laughs> she was talking about communication between teachers and students and how important that is. Um, you know, with because you don't know what the student is experiencing or feeling. Like you can't really help them if you don't know what they're looking for, what they need, what they feel, what they think. Um, it's it's really a two way street and. And you're talking about that too. So I think that's, that's awesome. Mm -hmm. um, now, I, I don't know if this is kind of an out there question. It's something that as an instructor, I'm thinking about. So I'm going to ask it and you can tell me like, <laughs> you know, I'm guessing that there's uh, varying levels with what you're talking about, um, varying types, varying degrees. Um, so there's students who are going to have diagnoses and students who are not. Is that accurate? Yeah, and in the autistic community, um, self-diagnosis is recognized. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Whether or not it's recognized in the medical community or not, in the autistic community, it is. And notice mm -hmm. that I am using um, identity first language. And that's another difference. You know, advocacy groups tend to use like a first person language. So like a person with neurodiversity, I'll just say that. Um, whereas the, the groups themselves, um, especially in the autistic community, and there's variability, and um, in the blind community, the deaf community, they use identity first language. I mean, it's part of the identity. So once a person gets to the point that they're like, hey, you know what, this is my experience, and this is what's happening, um, that is recognized in the autistic community, because it's so hard to get a diagnosis, especially for females, because it's based on males. And in my age group, they didn't diagnose this stuff. You know, I, I was having symptoms, you know, age four with a hyperactive nervous system. I had going back. It is a spectrum. Yes. So, you, so that's why we just communicate with each person because there's so much difference um, within um, this, these groups. You know, in my age group, that wasn't diagnosed back then. It wasn't recognized at all. And some of my symptoms has my, I have a hypersensitive nervous system. Um, I have tissue damage, even from it. I have pain disorders. I have two pain disorders. So um, whether or not, what came first, the chicken or the egg? I mean, some of my um, more diverse communication styles and needs may have come from the pain disorders. Or I don't we or you know we don't know what, what came first. So everyone will be different. But I will ask you know when students are overwhelmed. My own experience is you know sometimes it's like if I'm trying to maintain and I'm anxious. You know if you don't practice enough and you show up for your lesson, you're anxious, and then that makes things worse. Um, if, if, if it's noticed that I'm anxious and somebody's like, who oh, are you okay? It's almost like I wasn't to ask and it triggers me into just going straight on into, um, and when I played music when I was young, I would cry. That's the first part. And then I would hyperventilate. Um, I've missed opportunities with collegiate professors as a sixth grader because I was hyperventilating and all they could do is pat my back. <laughs> you know, um, but then I would like break out in hives. I would, I would throw up. I'd break out in hives. I'd shake it controllably. And then eventually I got to where my, I have tissue damage throughout my whole body from my nervous system just freaking out so much. So um, 
I, it's not good to push. You just don't know how far their body's going to take it. And if they're overwhelmed in lessons, it's like, hey, it's okay. Let's get some water. Let's do something different. What do you, well, always, what do you need? There, and that goes back to what Lee was saying is ask questions because teachers just mm -hmm. don't ask enough questions sometimes. Yeah. And also don't take it personal. I mean, I'm a, I'm a college professor, so I, I understand like there's this demand uh, and rigor that I expect from my students, but then there's acknowledgements like, hey, what do you want to do? Not everybody's going to be a professional musician. Playing music is so good for us. It's like if only if the only thing that student wants to do for weeks on end is just play skills, maybe that's what their brain needs to just kind of settle back into the patterns and when they get ready they'll be able to move forward but you can't always push them at, at, at what we might want you know mm -hmm. um their progress may just look different Con just continuing to play music is is progress you know mm -hmm. um but and then the other bad part about it like i like i don't even know what my needs are even day to day sometimes and like what you're saying, you don't know what their students are bringing in. And, and if there's something else that kind of triggers and makes things hard, um, then that's going to affect their lessons. And um, for me, I mean, I feel like it was sad. I mean, it was sad that I stopped playing. Mm -hmm. And I'm thankful I came back. Um, yeah. But I felt like I was going to have a nervous breakdown if I would continue playing music. That is where I was. And I'm going to have to go that far. Yeah. And, and I mean, what, what you're talking about, too, is something that I see in um, certain colleagues, not not all of them, certainly, but certain colleagues who it doesn't seem to matter which student is in front of them. They're going to push them into, you know, the competitive side of things like, oh, well, you're going to try because it, it reflects nicely on the, you know, teacher if, oh, well, all of my students are, you know, made regional band and all of them made state. And, you know, um, but at a certain point, I mean especially with what you're talking about, that's, that's music as an outlet, um, for, like, as a healthy outlet. Okay. Well, if that's the purpose of it, then that's going to be a completely different approach as a teacher. It should be. So thankful. I've had wonderful teachers and I want to throw that out there. Most of my pressure is internal. I don't, I don't mm -hmm. have to be pushed I, from, I, you don't have to push me as a teacher. I'm internally motivated. So I would bring the stress in. I'm the student that the teacher's like, it's okay, calm down, <laughs> you're doing good, you know? Um, but one thing I would love to see um, changed in the narrative, right, is recognizing, number one, musicians are small muscle athletes. And this goes to the great work that Angela's doing. We're small muscle athletes. And so injury, prevention is is huge okay but then recognizing okay we're small muscle, muscle athletes but then you know the work in the brain is is just important for our health as exercises for the body um there's a website i saw in europe and i can't remember which one is a neuromedicine i think and it and it was said you know from cradle to cognitive reserve that is where the way we need to approach music is it that is to build brain structures and connectivity. So music is to the brain, like exercises to the body. And every person that goes into exercise, they're not, you know, they're not gonna be a, 
a college athlete or they're not going to be a professional athlete. It's just good that you exercise. Walking is good. And, and that's why I need push music. It's just good to play. And I'm so thankful that I was not pushed into competition because I would not be able to handle that. I had enough competitiveness with myself, you know, and I am very competitive academically I can handle all that competition I, I'd be the smartest you know I'm gonna try to do the best on the test in the whole room but like with music it destroys it destroys me it, it affects me in a different way and um so some students they're not going to tolerate being pushed that way and instead it's like hey we're just playing that's that's great and um I'm thankful when I started playing music again with uh Kara Daly um she she's like I just want you to play <laughs> just play you know um, and that's what I needed. Yeah. So I have some, 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 some thoughts. We're going to go all the way back to the beginning when you were talking about, <laughs> we're talking about diversity here. I mean, your degrees are. Yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah. I'm such a nerd. I, I, I joke I'm a professional nerd. Like I'm obsessed with learning. Obsessed. That's, it's wonderful, but you're, what I love is that your interests are so diverse. I mean, A and P and then psychology, which go together, anatomy, anatomy and physiology go with psychology because my gosh, that there's so, there's so much, you know, the brain is part of the body. Yeah. We, sometimes we forget about those things. And then on, on the right. other side, as a trainer, my gosh, half of my session is counseling. I feel like, you know, I mean, this is people's time, you know, but then you're talking about hypnosis. Wait, what? I don't know where to go. There's so many things I want to ask. I'm not what sure to ask what first, except maybe I can ask you what made you interested in all of the, like, where is the pattern? Uh, where's the pattern of going from one thing to the next? Like, how do these connect? Okay. Please. I'm going to freak you out even more. Yay. No. <laughs> <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> okay. So, um, so my senior year in high school, I dropped out of band, all these, I always, I've always had a weight problem. And part of that was because I was so anxious as a kid. And I didn't know it, but my GI tract problems, IBS wasn't diagnosed at that time. And so um, I would overeat because it, when I would drink, it made me sick. So, I, you know, if, you, if you're, if you're dehydrated, you're at risk for overeating. So then I would overeat and then I wasn't um, processing my food. So um, I kind of started like the self-loathing really early in life. I was obese from like age five on. So when I got into college and my plan didn't work out, I didn't get to do the band thing or whatever. Um, my weight was really high and I got pregnant and gained 50 pounds. I'm five foot two. Um, and when my son was like, over a year, two years old, I weighed 225 pounds. My BMI was a 52. Okay. And I was in the worst place I think I could have ever been in my life. It was awful. And I woke up one morning, I was like, I should start meditating. <laughs> and so um, the opportunity came around um, and I went to India and I came back just kind of feeling like, okay, I learned how to control some of those oversensitive reactions. 
Okay, so that it gave me a place to land and breathe and learn how to relax to deal with all that anxiety stuff. I lost weight. I got down to 122 pounds. You lost 100 pounds? Mm, 103. Wow. And so after that, and so I went into psychology because I'm like, what the hell's wrong with me? And then, you know, and then whenever I drop a music minor, I like anthropology. It's that simple. And I was like, well, how did we evolve? Like that, you know, it helps me to understand like, well, why do these changes happen? Like over 4.6 million years of human evolution. How do we evolve? That helps me understand the big picture, right? Is that a degree in psychology? I lose 103 pounds. I'm like, okay, I need to make it to where my life is dependent on me being healthy. <laughs> so I can have mm-hmm. a career. And also what just happened to my body? I got my master's in exercise physiology and so and then I started working in the hospital because I wanted to do clinical stuff I wanted to be but I always knew I was going to be a college professor because I'm like I was like the I was like the annoying kid you know I was I've always been the little professor where I'd have my special interest and I just talk about it all the time you know and so the the PhD at Baylor is perfect exercise nutrition and preventive health and so I focused there. And then whenever I was doing that, I, I could, we had to take classes, doctoral electives. So I went to a psychology department to take my electives. And so I took health psychology. So I'm like, I kind of like a full circle of myself. And um, while I was there, I, my professor, Dr. Gary Elkins, he's, has the extra, he has the mind-body medicine lab at Baylor. And he's an internationally renowned expert in clinical hypnosis. So during this whole time, I'd started meditating when I was 20. I'd been to India, you know, I'd gone to school there when I was getting a master's degree. So he was like, hey, you're perfect to come deliver this hypnosis intervention. And during the time that I was getting my master's degree, I started working in a massage therapy program. I started teaching in 2002. So I'm doing massage, exercise, you know, all, you know, trying to apply everything I'm learning and then work in the hospital. So um, it just it, it it just came together really beautifully, um, and I, I did you know I maintained my weight loss for nine years, and then I ended up having more kids, and I gained forty pounds. That seemed that seemed to be my magic number, and I get it off and got it pregnant again. So I have twenty pounds left, and I'll be back to my healthy weight. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's been a trip, man. I, I do feel sometimes I feel like oh, I feel like I've lived lifetimes in terms of my experiences. And, and throughout all of it, I'm like trying to understand things better. I want to understand things mechanistically, you know, going back to neurodiversity, what is happening in the brain and the nervous system? And then how do I keep playing music? How do I keep my structure good? How do I keep my, my relaxation sound? So that I can continue to benefit and have cognitive reserve. And plus, I want to play Bach. I mean, I want them to be able to say, she played Bach. Yep. But you know what I love about this is that music always has a place. And that yes. you don't, you didn't have to give up music. Like you didn't have to either pursue music or any of these other things, or only one of these things. That you had the opportunity to do all of these things. And you're pigeonholed into one thing. Like so many times in music, I feel like we are pigeonholed into you have to do this course or you can do this course or you're not legit. You're not a real musician, whatever that means. You know, I mean, and and you're proving otherwise. You are still a musician and you have all these other things. Right. 
Right. And I, I love hearing the, um, I mean, cause on paper, if you haven't been in any of these areas, what you described as your, you know, your experiences were looked like a shot, a scatter shot, excuse me, on paper, but I'm going, no, I see how that, you know, I see that. And it, it's, I'm listening to you. I'm like, yeah, I guess there's really only so nerdy you can be about, you know, what, what it is, you know, like the physical wellness, the, the, the mental stuff and any combination of that there's only so nerdy you can be before you start going down rabbit holes, like what you're describing. Like you can only go down physical movement for so long before you go, Oh, there's a mind aspect in here. Well, how does that play in? Oh, well, what if I looked at this from a structural perspective? Oh, well, what, what about meditation? How does that, you know, like, and next thing you know, you're, you know, three States over going, these do not look like they connect, but I swear they do. And bear with me. (laughs) (laughs) So I love hearing that from, from somebody who's on um, the science end of it, if that makes sense professionally. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, um, my mother plays piano Mm -hmm. and um, I I just, you know, when I had to walk away from music, I I held on to all my music. I saw my beginner flute. I have my beginner flute books. I have my intermediate flute. I have every piece of music I ever p- played in high school band, which is funny because when the first time I played here with our concert band, we had to turn in our music and I've never done that before. I was like, oh, and you know how I like written all over it and stuff. And I was like, oh, and maybe I need to learn some new etiquette. It's been a while, you know? Um, I, I stopped playing in 1997 and I, I played again in 2018. That was my, my, my break. And, um, but I, I held on to every piece of music because I knew, I was like, this is so important that you can't walk away, but I needed to have a full-time job. So the postdoc that I did, that hypnosis um, delivery, um, when I had my second child, I, I walked away, I quit um, because I, um, my anxiety was over the top and, you know, I had undiagnosed fibromyalgia at that point and, and I was just, I wasn't in a good place and my husband supported me and I was able to just take the time with the baby that I needed. And then um, I just did adjunct work for like nine years and, you know, cause getting a full-time job in academia is hard. And um, so once I got that job, it was just like on board. I was like immediately. And, um, and I believe in music and what it can do for us. Again, music is just as important as exercise and nutrition and our health. And maybe even, you know, what you were saying just then made me think, you know, how it all comes together. You know, I believe, you know, we evolved to the sound, you know, we evolved to recognize these sounds and respond to music. It's such a big part of who we are. It's it's our evolutionary birthright is, is what I feel. And, um, and I knew, I knew it had to come back to it, you know, whether or not I can get past page two on the box partita, we'll figure out, but I'll at least keep trying. Bach is a lifelong pursuit. I know. Oh, yeah. yeah. Especially That's- in your situation. I, I don't know how you get past the first line. <laughs> just, there's just so much. But you it's know? so, you know, in the partita in particular, the fact that it's all 16th notes, and then, then that I can just, you know, you can add the musicality later, but the fact that it is that it's mm-hmm. so refreshing to me and it's so, um, comforting. Huh. Um, 
makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So yeah. I have to ask, when it comes to sight reading. Oh. Okay, I'll answer that. <laughs> Enough said. Because when uh-huh. I, I love sight reading, but I love the challenge of something new. I love the new things, but it's based on patterns. So I'm looking for patterns as I go. And I just base off, you know, oh, this is this. And if I played a wrong note, it's like, ah, it was close enough. Maybe I was right. Maybe I was wrong. I don't know. I'm sight reading, but it's, this looks like an arpeggio. So I'm just going to play that arpeggio, et cetera, et cetera. But is it for you that it's got to be a specific pattern and you've got to like get it a certain way or how um, did that I- go for you? Well, I played, um, let's see, three, six years and a 25 year break. And now I'm back to year th- I'm three years in now. Um, so I feel like in the, in high school, when I was young, it was a suffer fest for sure. I mean, it was, we had to be, do sight singing and music theory, you know, and I broke down and cried. Oh, and that's another thing. When you do lose a little control and get destabilized, it's humiliating. It is humiliating, and um, it was a big part of me just kind of walking away. But it it was hard. It would I would just crush. It would crush me. I would just lose it, you know. Um, but now, but I think I, I recognize now that's because you need more practice. That's where the attitudes come in. That's where just doing daily practice and reading things comes in because that helps you recognize those patterns when you are in those high stress situations. I am getting better. You know, um, I've had to sight read some band music where I've shown up and missed a rehearsal and played it off the cuff. And and that's another thing. If I have the support of the room and my section, it is better. I still, I don't like to be by myself necessarily. Um, I think being overexposed is is, yeah. is is not where my lane is. I like to be like in an ensemble. That's why I like our orchestra can be way back, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but um going back to anxiety is when you can't anticipate something. I mean, if you sight reading is nothing, but here's a surprise. And if you don't know where to find those anchors, it's going to be more destabilizing. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. I wonder why I like it so much. Maybe I don't mind destabilization. <laughs> sure, you're not. Over- it's my favorite thing. I'd sight read all day, every day if I could, and never work on another thing and just sight read. Oh, I love it. That's it's my fine. favorite. It's like, ooh, how fast can I take it? Yeah, I'm gonna screw it up. I don't care. How fast can I go? I mean, it's goofy, <laughs> but it's like, like when I when I leave my flute up to practice, that's what I do. Is I turn to something I've not seen before. I'm like, what does this sound like? I don't know. That's <laughs> that's how I start my practice sessions. And sometimes that's all my practice sessions are, but I mean, it's, it's a completely different situation. You know, it's, it's interesting how the brain works that way. Yeah. And, um, I don't know how that goes with, with your knowledge of psychology. I mean, I've always been a person that really loves new experiences and the creativity that goes with that and seeing the opportunities in the new experiences, even if the new experiences are crappy, there's a new opportunity there and just new, 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 new. But I still like, it, it doesn't mean like that I, I don't cherish things that are old but I like the new things. I don't know. One of the conversations lately um, that's becoming more mainstream is looking at some of these traits as evolutionary selections. So, you know, anxiety is an adaptation that's helped us survive. And COVID is a good example of that, right? So if you have someone who's really anxious, then they probably have less exposure. 
right? But being really brave and exploring is an evolutionary selection too, because we're not going to evolve without both, right? Mm-hmm. And and so I think that's part of, part of it too. Is great. You got to that freedom of movement and being brave and exploring and pushing boundaries. That's also how we get to the future. Um, so it's like this balance point, you know, of then also being cautious. And I think most people kind of are in the middle. You can just kind of teeter with those things, you know. Makes sense. Um, and also, I mean, I think that, I don't know, if we go into different fields, we go into the fields we're, we're good at, right? So, like, for me, physiologically, I'm like that. I was like, exploring, go find all the things, and I don't, you know. Um, whereas when I get my flute, I'm just like, I have to have instruction. I have to ask my teacher, like, where do I start? What should I do? What am I listening to? Why? What are overtones? Again, back to the overtones. I need a physicist to explain that to me. <laughs> <laughs> you know? oh. I don't understand why physics is not part of a required music degree. Like I had to take some college, uh, like in our, at my undergrad, you had to take a college course in science. Physics was not offered. It was either geology. I'm like, what do rocks have to do with music? Or biology. I'm like, didn't I have this in college? Or chemistry. I'm like, absolutely not. None of this has to do with what I'm studying. Why couldn't we take anatomy or physics? Both were off limits. Interesting. Those are actually helpful. Those are the two most relevant, I would say. Relevant. Yeah. I don't know. I had to beg to take an anatomy class, and I was going to take it over the summer. It was only offered to nursing majors. I'm like, well, screw that. I'm interested in this. And they're like, well, that's too bad. I'm like, hello? (laughs) And then I finally got them to let me take it. And then I decided not to study over the summer because I didn't want to. I was going to be gone. So then I had to take friggin' biology. It was the dumbest waste of two semesters in my life. I'm like, I could be learning something useful. I mean, it was like not mitochondria, but biology. I don't remember what we studied. I honestly have no idea what I was supposed to learn. Same with math. Like, you know, why that's a whole other rabbit hole but physics would have been so helpful I I teach physics all the time to my students Mm -hmm. and I've never even had physics but we talk about volume of airspeed and but you know velocity and pressure and that would have been super helpful yeah and I guess there are some schools that have like upper level like acoustics physics type stuff but it seems like they're like grad school level things because in the flint forum you know every now and then people will will pipe in that are physicists and they can talk about some of that acoustic stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and yeah, it's, it's great. It would be great if there was like, you know, stuff that was, was more aimed towards new musicians or even like a continuing ed type of thing. That would be yeah. fun. Yeah. And, and a lot of the times, um, cause Arizona state where I got my undergrad, they had an acoustic class oh. and I would have taken it but I had a class conflict I could not get out of. Um, there's only one course. I'm like, I cannot solve this problem. Because you know? <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> there was only one course. And then, you know, by the time I got to um, my master's degree, or maybe it was the other way around, one, one or the other, it was my course load was too full and I couldn't take any more classes for one of them. And, and certainly not a non-required class or there was a class conflict. <laughs> like I was there for seven years and I couldn't make that work. <laughs> I bet you could have dropped a theory class. Just one semester. I mean, I don't know. Too much that. darn theory. And I'm just going to stand by that. 
that. Like, <laughs> hey, been okay with that. We had an acoustics of music class. It was a physics class. My brother got to take it. He was a business major. Oh, I got, and I didn't get to take that, but I didn't know about it until after I'd already taken the dumb biology class. I didn't even know it was offered. It was like shoved off in some elective whatnot. I'm like, oh, that could have been my science class. Where are my advisors in this? What, what is going on? I mean, honestly, I think we could probably should have um, taken some of those, those core classes out and we could have replaced them, not just with business stuff, but psychology would be helpful because yeah. as a teacher, you need to understand your students. You need to understand your audience. You need to understand your colleagues. Business yeah. etiquette. I took a business etiquette class for fun. Oh my gosh, I use that stuff every day. Why is that not a thing, you know? Well, and I know that music ed majors have to take developmental psychology because they're going to need it. That's fair. Right. They absolutely should. I would have loved that too. But instead, I was forced to take two years of class piano yeah. because, and I quote, you need to accompany, you're going to need to accompany your students when you teach privately. I've never, A, I've never had to do that. B, you, you just said I'm going to have to teach privately. You know, mm. I'm going to teach as a performance, you know, I'm going to teach as a performance major. Doesn't that mean I should have developmental psychology because you know, I'm going to be working with kids. Yeah. <laughs> that's my thought on the subject that that's uh, just put that out there. Sorry. We went on a tangent there. No, you know, I think <laughs> one of these days we're going to, we're going to sit here and we're going to develop our own music ed course or music performance course for music majors. And somebody is going to latch onto it and go, I like this. Let's put this at our school. <laughs> We keep talking about this, you know? It does keep coming up. I, I don't understand why we had to have these core classes in undergraduate degree, like American history and English. And like, didn't I just spend all of my high school doing this? I'm in school for music. Like, oh, well, you only do music when you get to your master's. Like, what? Why? <laughs> but that still doesn't make sense to me. I mean, maybe I'm missing something, but it's like, I felt like it was a waste of time. I could have been practicing. I could have been learning something else it all of those classes I don't know I don't know if you had that same situation Jackie but it that drove me crazy one thing that was a little different in Alabama I'm thankful for um they weren't real you know we had to take three histories or whatever but we got to choose them as long as like you know they progressed and difficulty um and I, I I'm really thankful because like you said I was already in high school I'd already taken you know Alabama history forever and U.S. government and stuff and then I got there so I was able to say like world history it's like I want to go to the world and then I um expanded into Asian history um because even then I was really interested in, in um on Asia and that really helped set the stage for me you know going to India a few years later and knowing more about it and then I took you know advanced Japanese civilization and then I took all Asian philosophy classes so I was able I had felt like I had more control um mm -hmm. in choosing the curriculum and I think that's kind of what, what I'm hearing you know if if, if students could have more imp input yeah. but all that stuff goes into budgets and how big schools are and how many professors you have and what they're qualified mm -hmm. to teach and it's just there's lots of wheels turning yeah a lot of connecting parts and stuff so yeah. I don't think we saw that today. <laughs> no, no, I don't think, well, I know, I don't think we're suggesting that it should be solved overnight either, just to uh, clarify, because we do talk about this a lot, but, you know, obviously there's logistics. <laughs> <We're> just... <laughs> yeah. It's not as easy as just revamping a degree. 
and be right. like, oh, we're just going to get rid of all that. Uh, there was um, a degree, I forget which school it was. There was at one point, I don't want to say it was Harvard, where like those students could pick their classes and do their own curriculum as long as it had like this this pattern and, and where that they are taking what they're interested in to kind of put them in that um, towards their career goals. And then, then that kind of went away. And I was like, well, that, that was actually kind of cool. You know, empowerment. Mm-hmm. And, and that kind of brings us full, full circle, right? Is right. a lot of, of what I'm talking about in terms of neurodiversity, like recognizing diversity is like when you recognize, you can empower. And you have empowerment, you can continue. Because it's just too hard if you, if you feel like your power is being taken away, you know, it's just a burden. Um, and it's more effort to get to lessons. It's more effort to practice, you know, and, um, and those things. So yeah, it's, let people choose. Yeah, yeah. Because taking that away from them is, is a good way to push them out altogether. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We don't, we, and we don't want that. Nobody really wants that. You know? like, nobody ever said, you know what? Let's drive people away from music. <laughs> or I'm just, I guess there's different tracks, but even like with students recognize, okay, well, do you want to go professional or do you want to just be able to keep playing and, you know, playing and just in your community with different low stress groups or, you know, what do you want to do with this? Or you want to just play scales for the rest of your life every day because it feels good you know yeah um and and then recognizing that with the students say oh our goals are different here but as long as they keep playing and and then I know you guys know this I mean and I know you guys have get hard time being motivated too I know for for me recently it's like I had a big hump I had to get through before I got back to being like okay I I feel more motivated now and I, I want to embrace daily practice as opposed to being well, too overstimulated to where adding practice was too much. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I feel like I'm just practicing so I can manage rehearsal as opposed to practicing so that I'm progressing m- musically. Right. Yeah, that I think happens actually at all levels. <laughs> right. That happens at all levels. It certainly happened to me. <laughs> like, I'm just going to survive this week. I don't care if I get any better. <laughs> yep. Practicing for rehearsal is a, a very good way to put that. Yeah. And then, but for someone who's not neurotypical, right? So one of the things that was hard for me, like if you're not neurotypical, it means you're not thinking about the things the way other people think about. And sometimes like if you're having a conversation and you offer like a, a different perspective on it, I found like a lot of times people would think I was arguing with them as opposed to just offering a different perspective and Mm -hmm. that'll shut you down quicker than anything. And I noticed that for me that I started like the selective mutism where I would just stop talking. I just stop talking. And so if you have students who are having to navigate that too, then um, they may not be able to have to know how to tell you, Oh, I'm having a bad week or I didn't practice. The the week was tough or they may not be able to know how to articulate it. So I think that kind of comes back to like, having a safe place where you can just be like, Hey, you know, yeah. I, I told my, I had a, a two that I was working on. I had a bad week and I told her, I was like, I just, I didn't practice. Sit down. I practice. She goes, well, fine. We'll do it again next week. And, and I love that. It's like, we'll just keep doing it. You're, you have the same attitude. It was just assigned until you get it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so, 
that's, that was, that works for me, but, um, but yeah, you know, that's another um, recommendation from Harvard and, and their blurb was kind of like on a neurodiversity for the work environment, how to make it good, um, accommodating. Um, the other one is just be patient. Yeah. And that's, that's something that we've lost culturally too. Um, and I, I, I think it's good that you're mentioning that, that issue in this light too. Um, Cause I mean, it's hard enough when I've got friends on all sorts of viewpoints. It's like, like I'm not quiet about this. You know, <laughs> I don't care. Are you are you a good person? Do you care about me? Do you care about the people that I care about? Fine, as long as you're not malicious. Okay, explain to me why you think that way. Does it make sense? Yes. Do you hate me if I disagree? No. We're gonna be friends. Like, you know? yeah. <laughs> um, but that inability to voice a different opinion. I mean, that's been it's really become an issue lately. I see with a lot of people where, well, we're just, just going to shut down. We're not going to talk whether or not um, you should, or, you know, have the ability, you know, I, I've been around some argumentative people too, who don't mind arguing. But, like, <laughs> but when you're talking about, um, forgive me for the language, I'm, I'm still learning it. Uh, neurodivergent people. Is that right? Yeah. Um, He's like that that brings in a whole new light like okay if you can't handle hearing another opinion not only is that a problem socially but you're also putting people that you should care about at risk for you know worsening the problem that they're dealing with we, we don't need to do that it's fine to listen and go okay why do you think that way <laughs> like, you know well and then also like if, if a student doesn't understand that, mm -hmm. that's not a reflection on you as a teacher you know what I mean right. and I think that's another thing too where they like you know there's a maybe a, for some people it's a tendency to take that personal like that you know that they're doing something wrong that's why they don't understand but that's not it I mean you might just not understand because you're you're different in how you think about things one thing in the music community I bring this up the colors thing man like oh, tone that, colors oh man you know it's used in the language a lot and it's interesting a lot of people will say they have no idea what that means you know and for me I have no idea what that means it, mm -hmm. there is nothing I can connect to um so I I need it to be like well not speaking in metaphors I guess is the thing right yeah and so so what do we mean by color and so then I'm like wait a second are we talking about overtones okay like you know we're talking darker we're talking richer and all mm. of these these variables but then when you start throwing color i have no idea what we're talking about mm -hmm. i don't yeah. get the colors thing either i feel you uh, and, and make so, it light blue um, what does that mean yeah so if you're already like real literal on things and then mm -hmm. metaphors are thrown in then you're not communicating either but if that comes naturally to you and you're trying to share it then both people are frustrated Mm -hmm. well and that's that's back on the teacher though like if you're going to teach you need to be prepared to communicate with your students hear them out and vary your teaching style because mm -hmm. like like we were talking about with the, the student that I worked with before who it's like no I need to tell you what we're doing why we're doing it how it functions and if I'm being literal or descriptive that's my checklist for working with that student I'll say okay you need to get you know crescendo here and you're going to get to this loud and you're going to you know, like in detail, here's how we're going to shape the phrase. Then I work with another student and I'm like, okay, come up with a story. 
yeah. for this etude? What's happening in the story? You know, like, is it a trapeze artist? Is it a squirrel? You know, <laughs> those are two different students. They both understand what I'm talking about. Right. But I cannot, I cannot ask the, the student who needs details to, to play a squirrel. <laughs> you know? yeah. and if I start getting too nitty gritty with the one that I can say, okay, play a squirrel. Oh, that student is going to be so lost and it's too much. And then they get overwhelmed and they get anxious and they start messing up. Like, but that's on me as a teacher. That's nothing to do with like reflecting on them as students. Like, so we're, we're really getting back into, it's really on the teacher to be able to listen and adapt. And learn how their students learn. Mm -hmm. Not everybody's the same. Like that, mm -hmm. And that's okay. And not everybody's going to understand how to teach. It's fun to figure that out. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> you know? I think so. I want to bring this back to, to real quick, like uh, as, a, as a final thing. Um, you mentioned about hypnosis, and I know that's probably in people's brains. What can you tell us about what you learned, why you picked it, and what? Because, you know, when we hear hypnosis, we think of the guy who's like, look, I'm going to put a sock on your shoulder, and you're going to talk to it like it's a bird. You know, all these things. And we're like... <laughs> <laughs> and okay, it's like, so, you know, some people squawk like a chicken. Like, how does all this work and how does this apply to what you've been doing? It's so funny. One of the jokes, you know, in clinical hypnosis is, well, yeah, you can take anybody, college students, stick them on a stage and tell them to squawk like a chicken. They'll just do it, you know. Um, so, so clinical hypnosis, okay. Um, hypnotizability is a trait, just like IQ is a trait. Hmm. So IQ is a trait and, you know, even though someone has a certain IQ, you know, you can study really hard and do well. So we can still learn things, even though IQ is a trait. So hypnotizability is also a trait. Some individuals are not as hypnotizable and then some individuals are highly hypnotizable. About 10% of the population are so highly hypnotizable, you can give surgery without anesthesia that's how hypnotizable they are and I've seen videos of, of a woman having a c-section under hypnosis so there are individuals who have that ability now some of the original work you know with hypnotizability scientists went to India and they were with the um talking to yogis and some of the yogis they were able to like show their hands and say look I can make one hand hot and one hand cold and then they would measure it and they could. And what they came back and found is most people can do that. So you can do that. You can have then a conscious effect on some of these processes that we don't normally think that we're in control of. Okay. So the way hypnotizability works, we think, right? So the mechanism's not totally understood. Um, is it, it, it mitigates, so it puts a barrier in the axis that goes like from your hypothalamus to the pituitary gland to the adrenal gland, okay? So say if someone's having a symptom, so clinical hypnosis is direct. I, we are treating something. And so we're like hot flashes. When, men, when women get their menopause, their symptoms are symptoms of estrogen withdrawal. So your body is, female body's been, you know, depending on the estrogen to maintain body temperature, to maintain bone density and all of these other systems of the body. So when estrogen goes down, you can't maintain body temperature as much as sleep irregularities. There's like all these symptoms that for some women are, are not easy to manage. So that was the goal of the hypnosis treatment that I deliver. 
Um, there's other things that they deliver hypnosis to as well, like um, IBS, et cetera. So what you do, so you get a participant. Um, we, we just start out, we don't measure hypnotizability. We're just, you know, it's almost like um, progressive muscle relaxation a little bit where we get a person to like, you know, focus on something. One difference is we'll say, okay, what is our goal? So if it's like hot flashes, for example, it's like, okay, we need a lower body temperature. And so I would get a participant, they would focus on something or, and I'd be like, we're going to count to five. And it would, I'll start the head and we'd go all the way down and it was relaxing or listen to my voice. And then we would ask them to, to choose what visual that they could think of that helped them cool their body. So some women would say, I'm going to, we're going to, I'm going to imagine walking on a beach with a cool breeze or standing in front of a refrigerator or something. I, when you get them all the way relaxed, I can hear a difference in their breathing rate. I could tell when a person would get to like what we call hypnotic state. And then we would walk through those visuals that they had. Um, and then once you go through the visualization, you're walking through a, you know, beach, the wind is cool. Um, then we say, so then you would give what we call a hypnotic suggestion. And they're in control of that too. So the suggestion is, okay, we're going to, the suggestion is, so when you feel a hot flash coming, for example, you will be able to re-experience this coolness. And then after the suggestion, be like, okay, when we come out of hypnosis, you're going to be refreshed and you're going to feel good and alert. And, you know, you end with, with this alertness. And then it would be like, okay, five, four, three, two, one, you're alert. And they'll pop their eyes open. Now, again, it's a trade. So um, that's the first session. And then they would be given like a, something to listen to or they would practice to learn self-hypnosis. So clinical hypnosis, the goal is always to teach them how to do self-hypnosis. So by the third session, I would, say, I would say, okay, I'm going to teach you how to get into hypnotic state in like three, in less than three minutes. And so that way, as soon as a, a, a symptom comes, you can put yourself in hypnotic state and not have the hypothalamus and the pituitary system hit your adrenal gland to so have a symptom, to so flash. So it's a way to intervene, to, to stop the signal. Um, and then he has, Elkins has a hypnotizability scale, so they can actually measure hypnotizability to see how the intervention worked with that. I'm not familiar with all the results on that now. Um, but I will say, um, I had a I've had my babies without drugs because I am able to get myself that separated from my, the symptoms that I'm having. That helps. Wow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's powerful. It's a powerful effect. And there's people walking around and they have the ability and they don't know that they're able to intervene that way. And we, we try some of that with, you know, just relaxation exercises. Oh, and okay. So hypnotizability. This is the thing I wanted to remember. So we, right now, what you're aware of, your conscious awareness, is a teeny tiny bit of what your brain's doing. Most everything is being dealt with subconsciously, okay? So the problem with like stress and anxiety and hot flashes and all these things is you don't feel like you have conscious control. Going back to, you know, going back to anxiety, you can't predict it because you don't have conscious control, okay? But all of us go through hypnotic states. So, like, if you're always drive the same route, for example, have you ever driven somewhere and you don't remember how you got there? You just mm -hmm. got in your car and the next time, then you were just there? 
that's hypnotic state. So basically what you're doing is you're letting the subconscious take over because your subconscious knows how to get there. So what clinical hypnosis does then is it instructs your, your subconscious on how to take over the symptoms that you're having because you can't consciously control it. Can name, anybody do that or only people who are hypnotizable? I should okay, say. Okay. Well, um, only people can deliver hypnosis who have been qualified to do so. So like me, for example, I was able to deliver that intervention under the guidance of Dr. Elkins. And I'm not able to give that intervention without like his permission and oversight. So I'll, because I'm not a psychologist. Okay. But I, I got that training. Oh, um, I think I mean that backwards. Like yeah. can anybody be hypnotized or uh, only certain yeah. people? But so, so the person delivering it, I guess it matters, but anyone can be hypnotized. Anyone. Yeah. So, so again, it's a trait. So 10% of people are highly hypnotizable. I don't know the percentage of people who are not very hypnotizable, but most everyone has, is, is hypnotizable to some extent. So, so the intervention that we did for the treatment of hot flashes, we had a 74% reduction in hot flashes just with hypnosis which is better medication. Now, can you go have a baby without, without drugs being hypnotized? Well, that would vary, you know, with hypnotizability maybe. And, um, and then other techniques too. Mm -hmm. um, but would you, you know, have a surgery? Uh, I'm just under hypnosis. I would certainly want to make sure that that person was uh, capable. <laughs> yeah. But I do think it's beneficial even with stress reduction, you know, um, with mus musicianship, you know, um, because of the stress and performance related anxiety, right, is different than just general anxiety. And a lot of musicians certainly experience that. So if you could teach a musician, you know, self-hypnosis before a performance or something, just like, you know, we were able to lower hot flashes, we certainly could hopefully help that musician too before performance. Yeah. That's really cool. Mm -hmm. Honestly. I mean, we, it's not, it's not something that you hear people talk about very often. So. Yeah. Yeah. Because like the stage hypnotist, um, you know, phenomenon happened and, and then still in, still in general culture, you'll know, you'll see it on TV where they're, using it manipulative and the eyes and all the you know, fun visuals, but that's not what it's like at all. You know, if you sat down, if you'd ever done progressive muscle relaxation, you kind of recognize we're really getting into that um, learning how to relax the body to get the, to get the brain out of the way. Hmm. Like my band director, stop overthinking. Even when musician, okay. And the musicians probably experience some of this, like the flow state. Yeah. Right. Well, and, and most of us have done, like, I know what we're talking about. We haven't, we don't really hear the word hypnosis often. I agree with that for sure. But you're talking about progressive muscle relaxation. I've done that in yoga classes. I mean, intro, intro once. You know? <laughs> um, and then I, it, what you were describing made me think about, um, I've been in various clinics where we've done, you know, guided chakra work, um, stuff like that, where it's like, when we start giving it these different names, more musicians are going to be like, oh, oh yeah, I know what that is. But it's, it's definitely interesting to hear it from a clinical perspective. Like, 
it yeah, definitely yeah. takes. Sorry, sorry. I'm go ahead. <laughs> I'm sorry. Well, That's... even like the chakra system, you know, I, I am familiar with um, Eastern medicine and all of those things, and it's like, well, you know, even that and uh, the meridians and Chinese medicine, you are looking at the nervous system and the endocrine yeah. system. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and yet in music, we tend to more talk about it in those terms than think of like clinical hypnosis. It, it sounds like you know people go to that stage performance. It's like, no, (laughs) we've all done this. Almost all of us have done this to some extent. Yeah. Yeah. So, so most people have experienced it in some way and it, and it's important medicine. So, cause like with menopausal symptoms, you know, some of those medications increase the risk for breast cancer, um, heart attack strokes, and so if we can do something else that minimizes um, side effects, that's good. And, you know, it's medicine, you know. Yeah. Do you know? Music, is, music is medicine for the mind, you know. So music is medicine. So if, if there's barriers to being able to take that medicine, how do we remove that? How would you go about finding somebody if you were interested in pursuing um, some clinical hypnotization, maybe for performance anxiety or anything else? How would you go about finding somebody who would be qualified? Well, um, it would need to be a clinical psychologist, Mm, you know, most likely, you know, um, like I said, I would not, I would not deliver hypnosis without permission um, because I don't have that scope of practice. So I would, I would definitely look that up to make sure that they um, they were clinical and that um, that was the background. And, and there's an international journal of, of hypnosis, and I don't know if they have resources in there, um, but it is possible. Um, so for for Baylor, for example, the PsyD, we have a PsyD program, a doctorate um, in psychology, and they those students, and it's a clinical doctorate, so they have the opportunity to get that training. So um, there's probably other students around the world, you know, around the country and stuff or other professionals that have had that training too. But I would just have to Google it. <laughs> That's my short answer. I can just Google probably. That works just right. fine. Well, I know you've got to run, so we don't want to hold you too much longer. But um, if anybody has any questions for you, where can people find more about you and what you do? And, you know, if you want them to find you, I should say. Oh gosh, it's so funny. Yeah, so I'm kind of like um, I'm like somewhat introverted, which is the funny thing too. Um, well, the performance health um, Facebook page is good. I mean, my uh, I don't have a website or anything. You know, I'm not. I have a fountain pen Instagram. Like that is like my thing. I, I you know I have a, like that and a couple pictures of my fleeter on there. But yeah, my email is um at where I work is jdov at mcclennan.edu. So that that would be fine. Somebody sent me an email, questions there. I'd be happy to talk. And I hope that, and one other thing I'll make clear too, I, I hope I didn't um, say anything that was hurtful to anyone. I, you know, that comes to the point of like, feeling like you might be misunderstood sometimes, but I certainly, you know, my experiences don't represent everybody's experiences, you know. They're part, they're my journey and what I've observed and what I've found. And um, I'm not representing everyone, you know, it's just me. Um, but I would be happy to answer any questions. But I don't have a website or anything. I'm sorry. 
You want to see my fountain pens? They're at Dr. Dove on Instagram. So Dr. Dove is my fountain pen Instagram. So you can catch me there too. Check out some pens. They're really good for sustainability. Pens over here. No worries. <laughs> we'll tag you and all that in the show notes. And um, yeah. yeah, thank you for an amazing conversation. Yes, Yay. thank you. Thank you. Well, and, thanks and for I, having me. Um, I feel honored that you asked me. Thank you. <laughs> Absolutely. So yeah, thanks for coming. And uh, guys, don't forget to share, like, and subscribe. And also please leave us a review. If what Dr. Dove said was, was particularly, it just hit you a certain way, please leave us a review. We'd appreciate that. It helps us get in front of more musicians. So yes. thank you for joining us and we will see you next time on the Tune and Strong podcast. Bye. Bye. Thank you.